0: is monday october 18th and we are here finishing up the first half of the 12th article in the apology augsburg confession on repentance so today we're going to look at paragraphs 75 through 79 as we ask the question are you guilty or do you just feel that way again taking on the idea of contrition and the terrors of conscience Versus attrition and the fear of getting caught. All right, so let's start looking at paragraphs 75 and 76. Third, the adversaries say that sin is pardoned because an attrite or contrite person brings forth an act of love to God, and by this act deserves the forgiveness of sins. This is nothing but teaching the law, the gospel being blotted out, and the promise about Christ being abolished. For they require only the law and our works because the law demands love. Besides, they teach us to be confident that we obtain forgiveness of sins because of contrition and love. What else is this than to put confidence in our works, not in God's word and promise about Christ? But if the law is enough for receiving the forgiveness of sins, what need is there of the gospel? What need is there of Christ if we receive forgiveness of sins because of our work? We, on the other hand, call consciences away from the law to the gospel and from confidence in their own works to confidence in the promise in Christ. We do so because the gospel presents Christ to us and freely promises the forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake. In this promise, it asks us to trust, namely, that we are reconciled to the Father for Christ's sake, not for the sake of our own contrition or love. For there is no other mediator or atoning sacrifice than Christ, Neither can we do the works of the law unless we have first been reconciled through Christ. If we would do anything, we must believe that for Christ's sake, as mediator and atoning sacrifice, we receive the forgiveness of sins, and yet not for the sake of these works. All right, so really simple. The Roman idea of penance is that you don't have to be contrite. You don't have to mean your repentance. You just have to have a good intention behind the satisfaction that you do to pay off your sin. So as long as you have a good attitude while you are doing the Hail Marys or the Our Fathers or the Rosary or whatever penance you are given by the priest, as long as you have a good intention then, it doesn't matter whether you really mean your repentance and confession or not. You don't have to be contrite, you just have to be upright. Again, you don't have to be worried about your sin. You just simply need to be worried that you've been caught. And this is nothing but the law being given to us once again. And we see that we are crushed by the law and that we need to go to confession. Why would we need to be crushed by more law? It makes no sense except for to instill fear in the people. And that's exactly what Rome does. Rome rules by an iron fist through fear. Not of the priest, but of God, and having to suffer the pains of hell if you do not confess your sins. Whether you are actually repentant or not, just as long as you go through the motions, ex opere brato, It's just fine by Rome. But that doesn't do anything for us. Lutherans, on the other hand, direct stricken consciences to the gospel and to Christ's free promise of the forgiveness of sins. That it's not anything that we do. It's simply accepting and believing that because Jesus died on the cross, our sins that we have confessed have been taken away. We are no longer guilty of them. Even though yes sometimes we might feel that way. We might still feel the guilt of previous sins. And that's where the devil comes in to poke at us. The devil doesn't care about our current sins that we haven't confessed, that we haven't repented of. He wants you to believe that Jesus really didn't forgive that one. No no you you know you're still guilty of that one. Jesus didn't didn't pay for that one. Brothers and sisters, Jesus paid for all your sins. The repented ones and the ones that are not repented of. However, as we'll see in the judgment text, that, that unbelief, that unrepentance, that refusal, refusal to repent of sins is what lands you in hell as a Christian. But in your baptism, Jesus has died For all of your sins, and he has covered them all with the water and with his blood. And in that promise comes that even if you don't know all of your sins, which was another thing with Rome and still is, that you have to list all your sins in order to be forgiven of them. This is why we have those that we know and those that we do not know in our confession, is that there are some that we don't know that we have sinned whether it's been sins of commission that we've done or sins of omission that we've left undone and we don't even know all of them sometimes we don't even realize that what we are doing or what we are not doing is a sin but jesus died for them all he has promised to deliver you from them all through his blood shed on the cross given to you in your baptism. We continue on with paragraphs 77 through 82. Yes, it is a disgrace to Christ and a repeal of the gospel to believe that we receive the forgiveness of sins because of the law or in any other way than faith in Christ. We discussed this before in the article on justification, article 4. There we declared why we confess that people are justified through faith, not through love. That would be article 5. The doctrine of the adversaries is merely the doctrine of the law when they teach that by their own contrition and love people receive the forgiveness of sins and trust in this contrition and love. Even so, it is not understood they do not understand this kind of love toward God it demands. Just as the Jewish people looked upon Moses' veiled face, 2 Corinthians 3.15, let us imagine that love is present and let us imagine that works are present. Yet neither love nor works can be an atoning sacrifice for sin. The adversaries cannot even be opposed to God's wrath and judgment. According to Psalm 143, verse 2, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Neither should Christ's honor be transferred to our works. For these reasons, Paul argues that we are not justified by the law. He contrasts the law to the promise of the forgiveness of sins, which we freely receive and which is granted for Christ's sake. Paul calls us away from the law to this promise. Upon this he asks us to look. The promise certainly will be void if we are justified by the law before we are justified through the promise or if we receive the forgiveness of sins because of our own righteousness. Clearly the promise was given to us and Christ was offered to us because we cannot do the works of the law. Therefore it is necessary that we are reconciled by the promise before we do the works of the law. The promise, however, is received only through faith. It is necessary for contrite persons to take hold of the promise of the forgiveness of sins granted for Christ's sake through faith and to be confident that they have a reconciled father freely for Christ's sake. This is Paul's meaning when he says, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed. Romans 4.16 And the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Galatians 3.22 This means that all are under sin. Neither can they be freed except by grasping the promise of the forgiveness of sins through faith. Therefore, we must accept the forgiveness of sins through faith before we do the works of the law. Although, as has been said before, love follows faith because the reborn person receives the Holy Spirit and so begins to do the works of the law. In this section, we have a lot going back to Articles 4 and 5 in the Apology as Melanchthon covers Justification. Because justification comes first, and then we can have repentance. Because repentance cannot happen if we don't understand that we have overthrown what has been given to us when we were justified. Justification gives us Christ's righteousness through the gospel. Forgiveness comes from that same gospel, it doesn't come from our righteousness, it comes from Him being given to us as we confess our sins, as we beg God for reconciliation. And this is the image that Melanchthon has through Articles 4 and 5 and both halves of 12, is the knowledge that you and I, through our repentance, confession, and absolution, have a reconciled father not because we have done the words right not because we have done certain actions to overdo the sins but because of Jesus promise and the gospel that through his death he has given us the forgiveness of our sins there is no other way for our consciences to be at peace for us to be truly accepting and acknowledging that we are forgiven unless we see this given to us by Christ. We move on into paragraphs 83 through 87, where once again, Melanchthon throws out there that we could cite many, many more testimonies of the Scriptures and the Fathers that make this so crystal clear, but it's unnecessary because they are so crystal clear. But as Melanchthon goes through them a little bit more, let's go through them. So paragraphs 83 through 87. We would cite more testimonies if they were not clear in the Scriptures to every godly reader. We do not wish to be too wordy, isn't that a little late for that, Uh, so that we may bring this case to a conclusion. Neither is there any doubt that we are defending Paul's meaning. He teaches that through faith we receive the forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake, and that through faith we would set Christ as mediator against God's wrath and not our works. Nor should godly minds be disturbed when the adversaries find fault with Paul's judgments. Nothing is said so simply that it cannot be distorted by objecting. We know that we have mentioned Paul's true and genuine meaning. We know that our belief brings sure comfort to godly consciences, without which no one can stand in God's judgment. Let these legalistic opinions of the adversaries be rejected. Among these are that we do not receive the forgiveness of sins by faith, but that it should be merited by our love and works. Another opinion is that we should set our love and our works against God's wrath. This doctrine is not of the gospel but of the law. It wrongly teaches that a person is justified by the law before he has been reconciled through Christ to God. Christ says apart from me you can do nothing. Likewise I am the vine you are the branches. John 15:5. But the adversaries wrongly teach that we are branches not of Christ but of Moses. For they want to be justified by the law and to offer their love and works to God before they are reconciled to God through Christ, before they are branches of Christ. On the other hand, Paul argues that the law cannot be obeyed without Christ. We must receive the promise first so that through faith we might be reconciled to God on account of Christ. Then we can do the works of the law. Those who truly feel and have experienced sin and anguish of conscience must cling to the promise of grace. We think that these things are clear enough to godly consciences. In this way, they will understand why we have declared before the people are justified through faith, not through love. We must set against God's anger not our love or works, or trust in our love or works, but Christ as mediator. We must grasp the promise of the forgiveness of sins before we do the works of the law. And again, this was repeated over and over in this section, but over and over again in articles four and especially five, is that we cannot do the works of the law. We cannot love God until we have first been reconciled. Once we have been reconciled to God, once we have been forgiven of our sins, then we can do the works. Then we can start pleasing Him with our good works. Not beforehand. Our works do not help justify us. They do not help merit forgiveness. They are the fruit of the forgiven life. And we continue on with that in paragraphs 88 through 90. Finally, when will conscience be quieted if we receive forgiveness of sins on the ground that we love or that we do the works of the law? The law will always accuse us because we never satisfy God's law. Just as Paul says the law brings wrath, Romans 4.15, Chrysostom's ask about repentance, where are we made sure that our sins are forgiven? The adversaries also in their sentences ask about the same subject. This cannot be explained. Consciences cannot be at peace unless they know it is God's command and the very gospel that they should be firmly confident that sins are forgiven freely for Christ's sake and that they should not doubt this. If anyone doubts, he charges the divine promise with falsehood, as First John 5.10 says. We teach that the gospel requires this certainty of faith. The adversaries leave consciences uncertain and wavering. Consciences, however, do nothing by faith when they constantly doubt whether they have forgiveness. In this doubt, how can they call upon God? How can they be confident that they are heard? So the entire life would be without God and without the true worship of God. This is what Paul says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. Because they are constantly occupied with this doubt, they never experience what faith is. So finally they rush at last into despair. Such is the doctrine of the adversaries, the doctrine of the law, the setting aside of the gospel, the doctrine of despair. We are glad to refer judgment about this subject of repentance, for it is clear to all good people. They can decide whether we or the adversaries have taught those things that are more godly and healthful to consciences. Indeed, these disagreements in the church do not delight us. If we did not have great and necessary reasons for disagreeing with the adversaries, we would with greatest pleasure be silent. But since they condemn the clear truth, it is not right for us to abandon what is not our own cause, but the cause of Christ and the church. I've said it before, I'll say it again, because it keeps coming up in these articles. Consciences cannot be at peace unless they know the promise and believe the promise of the forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake. Everything else leaves it in doubt. Whether you're talking about having to do satisfactions or just trying to outweigh the good deeds against the bad, that you have done after baptism. Either way, it always leaves doubts as to whether you have done enough. But when you believe the promise that Jesus has done everything, then there is no room for doubt because everything means everything. There is nothing left undone if Christ has done everything. In the last few paragraphs of this section, Melanchthon goes into an understanding again, a recapping of faith and repentance. So we look particularly at paragraphs 91 through 93 right now. We have declared why we assign these two parts, contrition and faith, to repentance. We have done this willingly. Many writings about repentance are published that cite the fathers in a butchered way. The adversaries have distorted these to put faith out of sight. Among these are repentance is to lament past evils and not to commit again deeds that ought to be lamented. Again, repentance is a kind of vengeance of him who grieves, thus punishing in himself what he is sorry for having committed. In these passages, no mention is made of faith, not even in the schools when they interpret them Is anything added about faith. Therefore, in order that the doctrine of faith might be clearer, we have named it among the parts of repentance." For experience shows that those passages are dangerous that require contrition or good works and make no mention of justifying faith. Caution can justly be desired in those who have collected these centos of the sentences and decrees. Since the fathers speak in some places about one part of repentance and in other places about another part, it would have been good to select and combine their judgments not only about one part, but about both, that is, about contrition and faith." Rome, as it teaches and as it came through with the Confutation and even on to today through the Council of Trent and both Vatican councils, constantly butchers the doctrine of repentance ever since they came up with the idea of satisfactions, which is also a help in butchered talk about repentance and the Fathers is that this is a continuous cycle of butchering the things that just bring out what we want to say. And we want to say we get to take credit for this, and we don't. We don't get to take credit for it. In fact, when we do take credit for it, that takes the credit away from Jesus. And if we can take away credit from Jesus, why not take all of it away then? I mean, don't just take some of it away that, you know, I did my little part and Jesus did the rest, but just take Jesus out of the picture and just do it all if you can do it. Now the problem is, you know, you can't, no one can. And now as he concludes this part of the article, he quotes Tullian from the third century and Ambrose from the fourth century, both of them speaking about faith being required for repentance. Tertullian speaks very well about faith, discussing the oath in the prophet Ezekiel. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, Ezekiel 33, 11. As God swears that he does not want the death of a sinner, he shows that faith is required, in order that we may believe the one swearing and being firmly confident that he forgives us. In our estimation, the authority of the divine promises should be great by itself, but this promise has also been confirmed by an oath. Therefore, if anyone is not confident that he is forgiven, he denies that God has sworn what is true. A more horrible blasphemy cannot be imagined. For Tertullian says this, He invites by reward to salvation, even swearing, saying, I live, he desires that he be believed. O blessed we who f- for whose sake God swears! O most miserable if we believe not the Lord! Even when he swears. Here we must know that this faith should be confident that God freely forgives us for Christ's sake, for the sake of his own promise, not for the sake of our works, contrition, confession, or satisfactions. For if faith relies upon these works, it immediately becomes uncertain because the terrified consciences sees that these works are unworthy. So Ambrose speaks well about repentance. Therefore, it is proper for us to believe both that we are to repent and that we are to be pardoned, but in such a way as to expect pardon from faith which obtains pardon as from a handwriting. Again, it is faith that covers our sins. Therefore, there are sentences written by the fathers not only about contrition and works, but also about faith. But the adversaries, since they understand neither the nature of repentance nor the language of the fathers, select passages about a part of repentance, namely about works. They overlook the declarations made elsewhere about faith since they do not understand them. It's not that the Roman theologians didn't know this when they were coming up with the Confutation. They knew these writings just as well as the Reformers did. But the the problem is that they don't like the way that sounds. It doesn't fit their narrative. It's not a money-making gimmick to keep the church going because that is really what the indulgences were were money-making ways to keep saint peter's cathedral being built in rome now for the regular satisfactions that are for you and for me it's for the priest to be able to control his congregation very much like a cult leader controls through fear And through exercise of authority and power that's not the way Jesus set up the church Jesus did not set up the church to be a hierarchy to you know beat down on those below them he created the church to be a hospital for those seeking healing from their sins those who seek to have the benefit of repentance which is absolution which is what the second half of Article 12, which will start next week, is all about, is that wonderful gift of being told that your sins are forgiven in the stead and by the command of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we'll get into that next week, as I said. This week, the question is, are you guilty or do you just feel that way? And for those who trust in the promises of Jesus, yes, there are times we feel that we are guilty, but we have to remember that we have been forgiven. This is why we have confession absolution in our services. For those who are not sure about their forgiveness, who just want to try to earn their way into heaven, earn their forgiveness, they'll continue going and they will be guilty because they have not repented of their sins properly. They have not been contrite with the terrors of conscience that they should not be doing these things. But they want to say, hey, okay, I can do this. If it's only going to make me do a few certain things, it'll take five minutes to get done. I can take care of that real easy. And I just keep doing it over and over again. I'll just set aside five minutes every so often to be able to have to do that, and I can cover up everything. Are you ever done? Or does it just become an endless cycle? And that's the problem. The endless cycle causes doubt. Works do not generate faith. Works generate doubt. The promise of Jesus generates faith. Knowing that we can come to our Father even after the hundredth or the thousandth time that we are coming back to repent of something, knowing that he will forgive us because Jesus died for that sin. Whether it's the first time or the hundredth time or the thousandth time you've committed it and repented, Jesus has died for that sin. There is no doubt about that. All right, that's it for this week. This is Pastor Doug Minton thanking you for standing in the confessional corner with me as we finish up the first half of Article 12 in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, going from the definition of repentance these last couple of weeks to what is absolution and the need for absolution in our lives in the upcoming weeks Especially wonderful as we are getting around Reformation time and All Saints Day to be able to think on these things. And I encourage you to be back next time for the Confessional Corner. Be here Thursdays to dig deeper into the Psalms and every morning for the moments of meditation to give a bright moment to think about the great and wonderful things of God every day. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton, wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen.